0: Every chieftain made castles, and held them against the king. They viciously oppressed the poor men of the land. When the castles were made, they filled the land with devils and evil men. They seized those who had any goods. They threw them into prison, tortured them for their gold and silver. Never was a martyr so tortured as these men were. One was hung up, his lungs filled with smoke, another hung by his limbs, or else had a cord twisted around his head until it bore into the brain. I neither can nor will recount all the atrocities and all the tortures which were inflicted upon the wretched men of this land. Men said openly that Christ and his saints were asleep. these rather harrowing words come from the last insert in the anglo-saxon chronicle that's a book which was written in a monastery recording life in england it was written or at least dictated by an elderly monk who was probably a first-hand witness to the events he describes now as with any historical source we can't trust everything he says We know that in this instance he is deliberately trying to shock the reader, so he may have embellished his memories, he may have exaggerated slightly. But his recordings, and others from this period, do offer us a glimpse into the state of England during the period of civil war between 1135 and 1153. The view is not a pretty one. What's very surprising is that even contemporaries like this monk found the war so utterly unbearable. Remember that whereas we think of peace as the natural state of being, we see war as something unnatural, to be feared. But in the 12th century, war was normal. That's not to say they didn't fear it, but peace was unnatural to the medieval world. Despite this harsh way of life for the people of the middle ages though, There was clearly something different about this particular struggle which made it even worse than the normal medieval experience i want to challenge you to forget everything you think you know about the middle ages most of our preconceptions about this era are based on later developments if you've ever watched the pillars of the earth which is a drama series based on the anarchy forget the whole thing it's a great story, but it's a rubbish historical narrative. In the first place, we're still looking at a society which is essentially a warlord society. Castles were being flung up on an enormous scale, but they're not the stone fortresses you think of today. They're still mostly motte & Bailey wooden castles. In the whole of England, there were very few stone buildings. Westminster Abbey, the Tower of London, they were the most significant stone buildings, and there was a couple of towns and barons which had made use of old Roman stone fortresses, but that was it. There was also no such thing as an Englishman, not in the way you think of it. You do see the title of England, the references to the English people, but the English people then were Saxons, who spoke a language we wouldn't recognise today. The barons were Norman, but again, don't make the mistake of just thinking they're French. Normans, they spoke French, they drank wine, but culturally, and in the important things, they were essentially still Vikings, with a vastly different outlook and approach to the rest of France. Even the monarchy itself was different. Kings were the top warlords, but they were what we call prima inter pares they were first among equals, A king was referred to as my lord, not your majesty, precisely because they were not yet set apart by a perceived spiritual difference. The divine right of kings had not yet been created. And in this warlord, barbaric, chaotic world, England was already in flux. As we've seen, the Norman king William the Conqueror had overthrown the Saxons and the Norwegians, to create a kingdom that was totally under the control of his barons. To do this, they had erected wooden castles across the country, and they had displaced the entire Saxon nobility with a Norman one. If you think there are race tensions today, you should see the 11th century. His death had ushered in years of war between his sons, until Henry I had arisen to the throne. Now Henry was different, he had tried to amalgamate the Saxons with their Normans. He had even taken a Saxon wife, and proclaimed his son to be Atheling, which is the Saxon term for the heir. But William Atheling had drowned in the white ship disaster of 1120, leaving Henry without an heir. In the 12th century there were no succession laws. Anyone who was a relative of the king could be seen to have some claim to the throne. It was not uncommon for younger sons to inherit titles over an older sibling, or for cousins to take control instead. But no heir at all was a recipe for disaster. The most obvious contender, at least from her point of view, was his only legitimate child, Matilda. She had been married off at a young age to the Holy Roman Emperor, and although he had since died, she still carried the impressive title of empress. She then married the Count of Anjou, and although they had a tempestuous marriage at best, they did sire a healthy dynasty of three sons between 1130 and 1136. Matilda was also Henry's chosen heir, no fewer than four times he had gathered the barons of England together to force them to swear allegiance to Matilda. Her problem was, they didn't mean a word of it. In England, there had never been a female ruler. There wasn't even a word for it in English. The word Queen meant wife, not ruler. She was also a stranger to England. She had been married off first to Germany and then to Anjou. She was an unwanted unknown as far as the English barons were concerned. Then there was Theobald of Blois, one of the wealthiest men in France. He was the grandson of William the Conqueror, but he was also Count of Blois, brie, champagne and chartres, and that brought him enormous wealth and power. But he was much more intertwined with the French court rather than the English court. He knew himself it would be difficult to govern his French estates while also being king of England, and he too was unknown in England. Then there was Theobald's younger brother, Stephen of Blois. He was not nearly as illustrious as his cousin the empress, or even his brother, the French Count, but he was well known throughout England. As Count of Boulogne, he was also the closest candidate to England when Henry II died, and remember that at this point, no one was monarch until they were crowned in Westminster Abbey. Geographical proximity could tip the balance in Stephen's favour. Importantly, in the 12th century, the city of London, in a throwback to their Saxon days, still claimed the right to elect a new monarch, and they elected Stephen. But the man with the power to truly choose the monarch was another of Theobald's brothers, Henry, Bishop of Winchester. Although not an archbishop, the Bishop of Winchester was the wealthiest diocese in England, and Henry was the second richest man in the country. Moreover, he also served as Lord Chancellor, meaning that he literally controlled the purse strings as the man in charge of the royal treasury. So Henry had the power to make a king by crowning him, and then sustaining him by surrendering the treasury. Rather unsurprisingly, Henry backed Stephen. And so on the 22nd of December 1135, Stephen of Blois was crowned King Stephen I of the English, The sheer power of the coronation cannot be underestimated. Until someone was crowned, the throne was fair game for anyone with the power and ability to seize it, just as Harold Godwinson had done before the Norman Conquest in 1066. Once a coronation took place, however, the warlord was bestowed with the authority of God. In a sense, the coronation ceremony was far more important than the bloodline It didn't matter who was wearing the crown, it mattered that they were crowned in Westminster Abbey. We see this in the attempt of Theobald to take the crown. He gathered his supporters in Normandy, ready to launch his claims. But news quickly reached them that Stephen had already been crowned. And once that happened, his support pretty much just ebbed away. Stephen paid Theobald to relinquish his claims to the throne, and from that point onwards, Theobald became a keen supporter of his younger brother. His cousin the Empress would not be so easily dealt with. Matilda was pregnant at the time of Stephen's succession, so she couldn't do much initially, but she did tour the castles of Normandy and Anjou in order to shore up her support there. In the meanwhile, Matilda's maternal grandfather, the King of Scotland, invaded northern England, taking Cumbria and huge swathes of Northumberland. Meanwhile, Matilda sent ambassadors to the only person in Europe with the power to undo a coronation service, the Holy Father, the Pope. Europe was under the sway of the Roman Catholic Church, a single Christian faith under the authority of a single man, the Pope. You have to remember that ever since the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe had been trying to rebuild it. By the 12th century, every country was seen to owe their spiritual obedience to the Pope, who was a sort of spiritual Roman emperor. The titles held by the Pope, for example Pontifex Maximus, was an imperial Roman title, and the political power of the church was growing. Even the Holy Roman Emperor had been laid low when he tried to defy the Holy Father. The Pope could literally crown and uncrown kings. His backing was crucial to any contender to the throne and it was dangerous to oppose him. Stephen knew this too. He sent his own representatives to Rome whilst in England. He sought to win the allegiance of the English church. He granted extensive lands to the Cistercians and other monastic orders, and he made pledges to uphold the ancient liberties of the church, and most significantly, he he promised to restore all of the church lands which had been taken from them since the Norman conquest. His bribery worked. The Pope formally acknowledged Stephen as king. On the surface, Stephen seemed to have got exactly what he wanted. He had bribed his brother into silence, purchased the support of the church, and in 1136, he even managed to convince the Scottish king to take payment and lands in the north in return for peace. He seemed unstoppable. But then came the problem, which would beset him for the rest of his reign. All of his actions had been ruinously expensive, and within a year his debts were piling very high. Granting so many lands away had also diminished his income, but he also realised he had promised a little more than he could deliver. You see, Stephen had promised to restore church lands, which had been taken from the church ever since the Norman conquest. But most of those lands were now in the hands of the barons, not in the hands of the monarch. That meant that Stephen would either have to offend the church by refusing to deliver the promised lands, thereby losing his biggest ally and a singularly most important institution in Europe, or he would offend his barons by seizing their lands, thereby depriving him of their support on whose military abilities he depended. Almost immediately, he realised that he was walking an unsustainable tightrope With so many potential rivals to his power, all it would take was one offending lord, and his support would collapse like a deck of cards. In 1136 and 1137, there were uprisings in Normandy and Wales against him, but he was able to defeat them, but they left him vulnerable. And in 1138 came the biggest blow yet. The Earl of Gloucester had betrayed him. Robert, Earl of Gloucester, was the bastard son of Henry I and the half-brother of the Empress Matilda. Initially, he had supported Theobald's claim to England, but by 1138, he had transferred his allegiance to Matilda. When news reached England of his defection, Kent and huge swathes of the southwest surged in rebellion against Stephen. In the north, the King of Scotland invaded once again Matilda's husband, the Count of Anjou, invaded Normandy. Stephen was encircled. He had no choice but effectively to withdraw from Normandy and from the north of England, leaving the Scots and the Angevins victorious, while he focused on crushing his southern English rebels. By 1139, he had managed to restore some form of peace to Yorkshire in the south, but there was now even further danger on the horizon. The Empress, was ready to invade. There had been a further development, which had helped Matilda build on her support. While Stephen had been cementing control over England, Matilda had once again been appealing to the Pope. Now the Pope had refused to swap his allegiance to her, he was still technically supporting Stephen. But by publicly considering the matter, rather than dismissing it entirely, The Pope had accidentally demonstrated that there was doubt over Stephen's position. It meant that he had tacitly acknowledged that Matilda had claim, and that meant that Stephen's barons did not feel so spiritually bound to their oaths to the king. This was dangerous territory for Stephen. In August 1139, Matilda arrived in England to a country split almost evenly down the middle. The west was her's the East was Stevens. It's worth mentioning here about the nature of warfare in this period. Forget the idea of fighting on the open battlefield. Those types of battles were exceptionally rare. Forget any idea you have about brave knights with colourful banners and shining armour, of easily distinguishable teams and organised tactics. The reality is, in this period, warfare was chaotic and messy. The barons did train as knights, they had their own colours, but each family had their own colours and patterns and it had nothing to do with which side you were on. One of the biggest problems facing a medieval knight was figuring out who was on your side and who was the enemy. And the knights didn't expect to be killed, they were too valuable for that. Of course some would inevitably perish in a battle, but the vast majority, if defeated, would be captured and ransomed. Ransoming knights was the best way to earn enough money to pay for your war. But knights also only formed a small contingent of any army. Aside from knights, there would be many hundred men-at-arms, that is to say men who were reasonably well trained, often household servants and bodyguards, who knew how to wield a weapon and could be pretty tough. They would wear whatever armour they could afford, but it usually wouldn't be more than leather padding. And they would also be the bloodiest of the lot. They would have the weapons, the strength, the ability to kill, but not the value to be ransomed. So they were fighting to the death. But the biggest chunk of any army would be the peasants. They were conscripted. If you think your rent is expensive now, thank your lucky stars you were not alive then. You were literally expected to fight for your landlord when called upon to do so. And they were not paid. They were often not fed properly. They had no armour and fought with whatever weapons they could get their hands on, sometimes just sharpened sticks or farming utensils. And they were the ones who were liable to be massacred when fighting broke out. And warfare during this period was almost always siege warfare. It was based around castles. But castles were designed to be difficult to take. So if you wanted to take a castle, the most effective way of doing it would be to simply surround the castle and wait for the defenders To be too hungry to carry on. A well-defended, well-stocked castle might take months to take. All of this meant that when Matilda invaded England in 1139, there was no expectation that it would be over quickly. War was always drawn out and an expensive affair. For two years, the war raged with neither side seeming able to claim the upper hand, not even much shifts in the geographical boundaries. Then finally, in 1141, Matilda had a breakthrough. Stephen had already offended the church by refusing to grant them all of the promises he had made when he became king. In 1140, he made matters worse by confiscating the lands of several bishops who were rumored to be about to defect to Matilda. The problem was, He had absolutely no proof that the bishops were about to defect, and so it seemed to both his barons and the church that Stephen was making a cash grab against his own supporters. Stephen's own brother, the wily bishop of Winchester, decided to defect, bringing with him the spiritual support of the church and the power over the royal treasury. Meanwhile, Stephen was besieging Lincoln, but the Earl of Gloucester arrived to trap Stephen beneath the city walls a battle broke out which was fierce and chaotic. As the dust cleared, Stephen found himself a prisoner. Matilda had now won. Even Stephen was ready to concede defeat, formally releasing his subjects of their vows to him. Baron after baron began to swear fealty to Matilda, while in Normandy, her husband was busy cracking down on any remaining pro stephen barons. Matilda did not take the title of Queen, that was a word which meant wife, but instead she was known as the Empress Matilda Domina di Anglicae, meaning the Lady of the English. But almost immediately, Matilda began to face problems. By nature, she was haughty and arrogant. Now, to be honest, she was probably no worse than any of the Norman kings who had came before her. But she was a woman, and a woman was meant to be meek and obliging, whereas Matilda was commanding and imperious. Her support, although it was growing, was pragmatic. It was never really enthusiastic in England. But the biggest obstacle came when she tried to reach London in June 1141, Remember that her success so far wasn't enough. She needed to be crowned in Westminster Abbey, or else she was not a proper monarch. But when she arrived at the city, the Tower of London closed its gates to her. After a humiliating few days in the city, the people themselves rose up against her, forcing an embarrassing retreat to Oxford. And as if that wasn't embarrassing enough, it meant that she could not be crowned, and if she wasn't crowned, she could not rule properly in England. Stephen's wife, another Matilda, was welcomed into London with open arms. The country had now become increasingly paralysed. Barons switched between Matilda and Stephen at an alarming rate. Many simply withdrew from the fighting altogether and decided to wait it out. Across the country, people took to settling their own private feuds to exploit the weak. Law and order effectively broke down and nothing underlined this more than the fact that the royal mint stopped minting coins. A moneyed economy, the symbol of a sophisticated state, stopped for the first time since the fall of Roman Britain. In another spin on the Wheel of Fortune, Henry, Bishop of Winchester, swapped sides again. Matilda and the Earl of Gloucester besieged him in Winchester Castle, however Queen Matilda, that is Stephen's wife, not the Empress, marched in support of him, trapping Matilda and Gloucester. In a remarkably similar sequence of events, this time Matilda's force was defeated. She escaped, but Gloucester was captured. He was the military commander of Matilda's forces. Without him, she could not hope to keep fighting the war. She was forced to ransom him in exchange for the only prisoner that Queen Matilda would accept, King Stephen. What all of this means is that by the close of 1141, there was almost no change in position for either side. And this was a problem which would stretch on through the years. Neither side could muster the strength to adequately knock out the other. It's also during this period that the Lords of England started to take the law into their own hands. They built their own castles. Over a thousand castles were built at this time in England and they ruled without any royal interference or fear of retribution. And forget about any sense of the honourable knight governing his people. By this stage both sides have been granting lands to their best fighters, men who were tough, brutal and bloodthirsty. It's this period which the monk records as being one of oppression, of torture, of greed law in order break down, you get a playground for the unscrupulous and the nasty. And by November of 1142, Stephen had managed to pin Matilda into Oxford Castle. This was it. If he could capture her, he would finally end this war. But though he took the castle, the Empress was nowhere to be found. She had snuck out of the castle and fled across the frozen river on foot. The war was set. continue. You're probably already thinking that there's a lot of yo-yoing going on, swinging back and forth one to the other. But that's nothing compared with this next period. Historians refer to it as the stalemate period, because neither side could change their position very much. But the problem with calling it the stalemate is that it makes you think not much is going on. But the reality was far more bloody and far more terrifying. There were no major changes in strategy, it's true. The fighting continued across the country and on a local level almost continuously. In some counties, including Berkshire, they were effectively decimated, their economies collapsed because of the war. And throughout the 1140s the fighting grew in intensity And although the regularity of the fighting began to ease as the 1140s came to an end, there was certainly no peace, no tranquillity in England. And one of the biggest reasons that the fighting began to ease was that in 1145 a crusade was called, and many of the soldiers and the barons wanted to depart to the Holy Land. So many of them made private peace agreements without the permission of either Stephen or Matilda, and there was naturally less manpower for the two contenders to draw upon. In 1148, Matilda was also much older and growing tired of the continual fighting, so she left England for Normandy. But this was not a defeat for Matilda. In fact, very far from it, Matilda was about to launch her secret weapon against Stephen, her eldest son, Prince Henry. Henry had been born just before the anarchy broke out, and he was bred to fight for his mother's claim to power. Twice before he had attempted to conquer England, but he had been unable to do so with his smaller armies. But he had established himself with a reputation as a keen commander and a military leader. In 1150, he was declared the Duke of Normandy, and the last vestige of support for Stephen there collapsed. In 1151, he scandalised Europe by taking as his wife the recently divorced wife of the King of France, and she held huge lands of her own in western France, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Together, Henry and Eleanor ruled almost the entire of western and northern France, and now Henry turned his gaze towards England. In 1153, he launched his invasion with a remarkably small force, but his aim was the full conquest of England as his great grandfather had done so in 1066. The Plantagenets were coming. In fact, his invasion proved to be rather anticlimactic. Stephen had never managed to rebuild royal authority or overthrow Matilda's supporters, and England had been in a state of paralysis since 1143. Stephen was by now old and tired. He was weary of the war and losing interest in fighting it. In 1153, his son Eustace died, leaving Stephen without an heir. In the face of this fiery young invader, Stephen effectively capitulated. He met with Henry and agreed that Stephen would remain king, but that Henry would be his heir. Within a few months, Stephen was dead, and Matilda's son, was now the undisputed King of England. But what of his indomitable mother, the Empress? She certainly didn't retire to a quiet life. She became effectively the Regent of Normandy once her son was in England. She was called upon for advice and dispute mediation, not only by her son, but also by the King of France and even the Holy Roman Emperor. She also witnessed the creation of a new dynasty, witnessing the births of a grandson also named Henry, as well as Richard the Lionheart and King John. One contemporary described meeting Matilda in her later years. He recorded that she was much gentler in her older years, but she was still made of tyrant stock. The legacy of Matilda is a really difficult one to assess Because actually, although we all know the name Empress Matilda, we don't really know that much about her. All of the records during the war generally talk about the actions of the men in her life, not her personally. We don't even know what she looked like. She's often referred to as haughty and commanding. But I have to doubt whether she was any worse than the men in her family. No doubt it was simply disconcerting for a woman to be taking the role of a man in the 12th century. She was, after all, the first woman ever to have done so. But whatever Matilda was like personally, her legacy is crucially important. She was the first woman in England to seek power and to hold it, however briefly. She established the principle that a woman could rule in her own right and inherit on equal terms with men. And this was a male age, make no mistake, but underpinning it were some truly powerhouse women, particularly the Empress and her rival, Stephen's wife, Queen Matilda. The Empress also established the precedent that the females of the royal family could transmit their claims to power. Over the following centuries, many kings would be crowned on the basis of their mother's lineage. This was unlike the Saxons or even the French, where a woman's claims would be utterly dismissed, even in her male offspring. And Matilda was not only influencing England, but through her connections, the entire of Western Europe. There would come some very famously powerful woman in the centuries which followed. Eleanor of Aquitaine is one of them, but also Yolande of Aragon, who ruled as regent in France, Queen Isabella of Castile, and even Queen Elizabeth I of England, all of them owed their positions and their powers and their rights to the empress matilda for that alone matilda has to be seen as one of the most important characters in medieval british history